This is Patrick Daly and welcome to Interlinks. Interlinks is a programme about international business and globalisation and the effects these have had on our life, our work and our travel over recent decades. There's a little bit of history, a dash of economics, a sprinkling of business and an overlay of personal experience both for me and from my interviewees from around the world. Today we will be talking to Dan Thomas, who is an innovation thought leader and the author of the book The Corporate Startup. Dan comes from an entrepreneurial background and has been involved with technology startups across the world and is an innovation community leader in Europe. Welcome, Dan, and thank you very much for being here with us today. Thank you very much for having me on the show. So, Dan, you're joining us from where today? I'm living in Germany, in the south of Germany, in a little town called Stuttgart, most famously known for cars. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And you're originally from? I'm originally from Bucharest, Romania. Okay. Could you tell us a little bit, uh, Dan, about your career start and progression to date, kind of high level? Yeah, sure. So I started, um, I was uh, was 19, I was studying for my engineering degree in, uh, at the university in Bucharest, and I was, I was trying to become a, an electronics and communication engineer. And I think uh, in the second year of my studies, I realized that I'm not passionate about engineering. And I'm more passionate about how stuff is being uh, how stuff is being built business-wise. And then I decided to, although continue my studies, I decided to start my own startup. I was I was 19 when that uh, when that happened, and then um, I totally fell in love with the idea of building new products, building new businesses. And uh, one thing led to the other, and I um, started working with accelerator programs, with other people, startups as a coach, and then more by chance than by design, I started working with large organizations um, because they had obviously a need to innovate and they were looking at the startup world for um, for inspiration. And um, one of the large telco companies in Europe actually found me in, uh, in the startup community. And uh, they made me a mafia offer, you know, an offer you can't refuse. So Mm -hmm. I had to join them for about three years. That's where the book, The Corporate Startup, actually originated. Why? Because I wanted to quit my job after exactly three weeks because I said, the way you guys are building products in this company is unbelievable and unbelievable in a bad sense. And um, I started like taking notes and blogging about better ways to do it. And then along the way, speaking at conferences, I met my co-authors and uh, we wrote uh, we wrote The Corporate Startup, which actually in 2018 ended up being um, uh, a worthy book of the year award for entrepreneurship and innovation by the British Library. We never thought it was going to be that successful, never wrote it to be that successful. We just wrote it because we wanted to help other people that were struggling with uh, with innovation in their own large organizations, in their own jobs to, to get better, essentially. And now I'm just um, just an international consultant. I work with um, with large organizations around the world, um, helping them become better at innovation, help, helping them transform. Okay, so I, I, that was the yeah. bird's eye view. Uh, yeah, and your your book book title again is uh, the corporate startup. The corporate startup, and can people find that on Amazon and so on? Amazon, it's translated, I think, in about six languages. So you have your choice of uh, your choice <laughs> of options. If you want to have uh, a uh, a digital version, you can get a digital version. There's also a print. So okay, and which language did you write it in? Uh, we wrote it in English. Okay, All right. it was an international team. One of the uh, one of the authors was uh, was uh, located in London. Uh, I was in Germany, and our third author she was located in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. And your current business then, as an international consultant, is since when did you say? 
Um, I think I, I, I can I can officially say I started in 2015 when I when I quit my my job with this telco company in uh, in Germany, but uh, I would say that I, I've done it more seriously starting mid 2016. Okay, and then working as a consultant, what exactly is it you do for your clients, and how would you describe? Uh, your your ideal client and where do you work you know in terms of international spread sure um so in terms of in terms of what i do i i always i always say that i'm doing one thing i'm helping them i'm helping large organizations lower the cost of innovation because if if innovation is not done properly it's going to end up costing you a lot uh, and all that money is, is pure waste, and it's waste that's happening at process level. You're spending way too way too much time debating whether or not to invest in an idea, uh, way too much to bring an idea to market, and so on and so forth. So whenever I come in with uh, with my colleagues, we um, we basically look at uh, streamlining your your process of of taking new ideas to market, which result in reducing the cost of innovation. In terms of ideal client, I don't think we have have a, a particular industry. What I've seen as a pattern though, over the past three years, uh, we've been working primarily in Scandinavia, so um, so Norway, Sweden, Denmark, and I think uh, there is um, there is a pattern there because these uh, these countries are obviously fairly advanced when it comes to at least digital, right? So uh, digital experiences around everything, interaction with the government, interaction with uh, with institutions, it's pretty embedded in their culture. So I think now they are at the point where they say, okay, we understand digital, how can we create the future? And I think this is why um, why we get a lot of traction in uh, in that region. Obviously, we have clients in other parts of the world, like 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 Germany, for example, or the Netherlands, or even or even Japan. But um, I would say that primarily is Scandinavia, and it's not because we we did more marketing there or anything like that. It was just I think that it comes from their maturity essentially. Interesting. And then in terms of helping your clients with innovation, are we talking about? tangible products? Are we talking about software products or are we actually talking about services or could it be all of those? Um, it can be it can be all of those. So um, we were working, uh, we were helping transform a uh, a bank in, uh, in Norway and we helped them uh, with uh, bringing to market pure software services and then also at one point they had a physical a physical product that they wanted to to bring to market. So Again, we are uh, pretty much inclusive when it comes to what what products we're working on. We're more interested in the process mm-hmm. and how people are bringing their idea to market rather than just what idea they're bringing to market. And then within uh, the innovation process, what are the major challenges that your clients face that they need help with most? What we've seen, and this is again also pretty pretty obvious for the startups, and something that we've learned that um, working with uh, working with startups around the world is that um, the biggest issue most people have is um, I would say stay humble, but stay humble in sense of accepting the fact that your vision might be wrong. So what does this mean? This means that accept the feedback from the customer. Accept the fact that even though you designed the product to be green, people are not going to accept it. They want to have it red. Of course, I'm overly simplifying here. Mm -hmm. But um, 
this is a mistake that a lot of entrepreneurs make. They they are, they just fall in love with their vision and they don't accept uh, they don't accept the fact that the market does not behave according to their vision. They the dynamics are different than what they they envisioned initially. And I think this is true for for startup entrepreneurs as much uh, as it is true for for internal product folks in in large organizations. So this is one of the biggest things we're helping them do. Um, accept the accept the feedback from the market, uh, internalize it, and obviously build products around that uh, around that feedback. And and how do you how do you well maybe it's two parts to this question. How do you think uh, clients are better off after working with you, or what do clients tell you about how they are better off after working with you? Um, one of the one of the major I mean major pieces of feedback, if, if I'm allowed to say that, um, that we've heard across the board, and it didn't actually matter if it was from, from a bank in Norway or from a manufacturing company in Japan, uh, was uh, was the fact that now they were able to be truly customer-centric. So beyond the beyond the, the PowerPoint presentation, right? Everybody has it on their PowerPoint presentation and we are customer-centric. But a lot of people don't actually know what that means. So whenever we come in there and help them reshape processes and then even and work with product teams, um, they have to actually live by the customer centricity mantra, and um, that's uh, that. That was one of the feedback we we heard. And in in innovation, do you make a distinction between innovation and problem solving? And if you do, what is it in your mind? It's a very good question. Um, I I believe that um, innovation and problem solving are very very much connected. However, you can do problem solving without being innovative. You can do problem solving with an existing with with existing solutions. Uh, what's really interesting if you do that, the process of reusing existing solutions or repurposing them then becomes uh, becomes uh, becomes an innovation in itself. Um, I personally believe that as humans, right, as humans, mm-hmm. we are very innovative. We wouldn't have been here speaking across uh, across the, the world on on very thin devices. I'm actually using an iPad now when I'm speaking with you, um, using a, a Bluetooth headset, right? Mm-hmm. Without being innovative, I mean, from from the moment we we um, we invented the wheel and the tools and everything is innovation in uh, in, in humankind. But um, I believe that now we're become a bit complacent, I would say. So we're not as innovative as we can be. So I'm actually helping a lot of people um, get in touch with their inner innovator, if you want. Um, I don't know the reason why why we lost that uh, that innovation ethos along um, along the way. I, I I have my assumptions, but um, the idea is that everybody is an innovator, in my opinion. Everybody can be an innovator, given that they are put in the in the right environment and they are given the right tools, the right coaching, the right the right circumstances, if you want. When you when you mention that um, loss of innovation, are you referring to? Very recent years? Or are you referring to a generational thing, or what, what? What time period are you thinking of? I'm I'm thinking more of a um, I would say 
a time span of about 50 years. I think in the past 50 years, we, uh, we, we lost it. Probably in the past 30 would be a bit more, more accurate. But I'm seeing us just being complacent with the, with the technology that we have. Obviously, there's a lot of people nowadays, contemporary, right, um, that um, are pushing the innovation boundaries. Like, look, look at what's, what's possible with Elon Musk and, um, and SpaceX. Uh, look at the Tesla. Look at all the other great innovations happening out there. But um, on the other hand, uh, if you look at the at the days before that, if you look at the industrial revolution, I think there was more more innovation happening at the lower level than uh, than now. I don't know. It's just an assumption. I, I don't think I've uh, I've actually uh, spent time researching that. Yeah, <laughs> it, it is it is interesting. If you think, well, my my grandfather was born what 1904 and died in 1989. I think the world he was born in and the world he died in were very different from the world. You know what I mean? The difference was greater than the difference in the world I'm in now and the world I was born in. So you you know, in that in that respect, you're probably you're probably right. Um, yeah. Do you do you detect or do you anticipate that the current crisis we're living through might be a spark for a new wave of innovation? Oh, hundred percent. I'm I'm probably one of the few people that's uh, that's actually you know very happy that this happened because I think <laughs> this is uh, and of course I'm. There's there's a lot there's a lot of tragedy in the world. There's a lot of people that that, that lost their lives or that lost their loved ones, and I feel sorry for them. But um, I think this is actually uh, kicking us in the right direction, kicking us to think to think deeper about how we work, what do we work on, uh, the organizations that we work in, the type of work we do, and um, and also obviously the the products that we build and the services that we build. I think a lot of people will will um, will probably realize following the crisis that the security and the stability of a of a nine to five was just uh, was just a myth, and it goes back to what uh, what um, what Talib was saying in anti-fragile right if you if you know that book I think it's uh, mm-hmm. it's one of my my, my preferred uh, my preferred uh, books out there um, it's uh, it's 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 basically a trap and it's it's a myth of uh, of um, you know security and stability you're actually more stable and uh, and more secure if you are nimbler if you want so I think I think the, the entire crisis is going to push us in the in the right direction uh, at the end. Yes, it's going to be painful. It is it is a dip, but uh, we're going to come out stronger, way stronger than than we than we came in. That's uh, that's what I think, and I'm, I'm getting some signals, some positive signals on that. Interesting. Um, I do a lot of work uh, on the strategy front with with clients in my consultancy business, and I think uh, strategy and innovation are quite uh, close to each other, and there's a lot of lot of overlap. And one of the things um, in the process, in the strategy process, that I, I find challenging with clients is getting them to break mentally to break out of the constraints of the present. Um, mm-hmm. How do you how do you work with them on that particular point to get them to f- just forget momentarily and mentally about what they've known up to now to try to use their brain in a different way? Right, um, it's it's a very good question, and um, why I'm saying it's a very good question because you cannot do innovation without a very clear strategy. Um, if you're just doing innovation without a strategy, you're essentially doing invention at the very best. 
and not even that you're just playing probably around with with technology or post-it notes or whatever whatever you have close by um so essentially innovation is uh, is uh, is an integral part of strategy and vice versa um how do you how do you convince an, an executive to to think uh, outside the outside the, the the current frame that's probably one of the most difficult questions i don't think i have uh, i don't think i have a key to that i only have my experience and my experience is that i always thought uh, their their innovation strategy um or the innovation strategy process i should say um from the future back to to the current day so i always start with what is your vision uh, where do you see the company being in in ten years? Where do you see the industry being in ten years? Where do you see everything happening in um, everything around you being in ten years? So essentially, if if these to happen in ten years, uh, will uh, C happen in seven? Will B happen in three? So what do we need to do today? What is the our A point, if you want? Um, and I think that's been pretty helpful for me and um, for my clients. I don't know if you have other techniques that yeah, I would actually I, like to hear about yeah, that. I was actually smiling as you were, as you were saying it because it's, uh, it's a kind of a psychological shift. It's quite subtle, but it's very powerful. So you bring the client in, into the future, get them just momentarily to forget about the constraints of the present and to paint this picture of the future in as much detail as possible. And that gives them a much uh, better uh, view and a better energy about what they're doing than if they try to imagine that while they're looking at all the constraints of today around them. Um, I sometimes say to them, it's like, you know, if you're in the mountains, that you need to get up above the tree line so you can see the panorama. Um, because if you stay in, in the day-to-day world, it's like being down in the trees. You can't see the valley. You can't see the river in the valley. You can't see the villages in the valley. And you certainly couldn't make a plan to get there. Um, so you need to get up above the tree line. That's, that's one little trick I use with them. I'm uh, I'm using another very cool one. Um, I asked them to look in to look in their wallets or to look in their in their bags, and tell me how many of those objects they have in their bags or in their wallets today will be obsolete in ten years. And uh, it's it's very interesting to get them to think about, for example, that driver's license are going to be obsolete because we're going to have self-driving cars, or credit cards are going to be obsolete because we're going to be able to pay with uh, with wearable devices or with the phone. So um, it's 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 a small trick. It's a small yeah, it's a small trick I'm I'm using to get them to think in terms of uh, in terms of the future and then what does it mean for us today. Yeah, it's a kind of what we might call a psychological sleight of hand. It's kind of what the what the magician does. He kind of takes your yeah. takes your attention to where he wants you to look. Uh, but exactly. we're, we're obviously doing it to, to help people, not to uh, not to fool them, obviously, <laughs> not to trick them. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I also another thing I notice is that uh, in in strategy as well, and this may happen in innovation, is that. Uh, failure it doesn't normally come in the formulation, uh, but rather in the implementation. You know, as people move from the talking about it to actually taking decisions and committing to action and resources and so on. Do you notice that same uh, process? And how do you help clients to overcome that pitfall? Yeah, um, I don't believe in I don't believe in uh, in mistakes happening at uh, at formulation because the way we formulate things should be hypothesis based. 
not 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 a set thing in the future is not that the future is not not that for example we're not going to have driver's licenses in the future but we hypothesize the fact that we're not going to have driver's license in the future there 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 might be a future where we're not going to have driver's license so if you're if you're moving towards that future um, which is obviously an assumption right you need to make sure that the way you you implement your vision is also assumption based uh, meaning that you don't create a step-by-step uh, roadmap to get there but more an iterative approach so you move to the next step you know you look back and say okay what have i learned um is this proving or disproving my initial vision if so what do i need to do next so um i think that the the way we we formulate and the way we implement need to be connected in terms of in terms of mindset if you want rather than in terms of uh, just in terms of the actual um the actual deliverable so you're not you're not working so much with predictions as with scenarios, and then you're tentatively going forward with the scenario. Is that is that what you're I saying? Know, I know that I'm going to be wrong if I if I work with predictions. I know that I'm going to be yeah. wrong. I'm <laughs> terrible. I mean, seriously. And again, from from my experience, right? Like I was I was in the university studying for my engineering degree. When I when I entered the university, I never thought I would be an entrepreneur. And another thing that that I told myself when I was in university, one of the countries I will never live in is Germany. And here I am. Nine years later living in Germany. So I, I know that I'm terrible at predictions. Yeah, ju- just about that. I, I, looking at your profile, I see you've studied and you've worked in, in many countries. You're originally yeah. Romanian, as you say. You mm-hmm. currently live in, in Germany. So could you tell me from your experience of working and studying in different places, what are some significant uh, differences and what are some fundamental similarities that you see between the different places and the different cultures? Oh, there are so many differences, and I think one of the one of the best things about about Europe is the fact that you can just cross a border literally 100 kilometers away, and uh, and you're gonna find a a new world if you want, yeah. a totally different world. Um, uh, probably one of the biggest differences I've noticed when I was working in uh, in in Asia, and in particular in Southeast Asia, I spent one year in Vietnam working there with the with the local government. I was doing an economic aid program part of which we were uh, we were building an accelerator program and helping other people in the region uh, other people in the region develop their own accelerators and um, one of the one of the most starting differences to our culture here in, uh, in Europe was the fact that uh, they are incapable of saying no yeah. And uh, it was uh, it was very funny. I was working with uh, with a with a good friend and colleague from San Francisco, and uh, um, we were we were trying to get somebody to do something. And uh, the answer was always maybe later. And for us, maybe later meant okay. So if you're not you don't have time now, but probably you're going to get around to it in a couple of hours or tomorrow or by the end of the week, which is fine. Two weeks later. We went to our boss, who has been in the country for about five years, and um, uh, he was uh, he was asking us the the status on that one. I said, "Yeah, our." We're still waiting. The answer was maybe later, and then he immediately started laughing. So yeah, basically he just said that it, that's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so then we had we had to go back to that guy and ask him why, what's what was preventing him from doing it. Was it something that design? He didn't understand the specs of, of the thing that we asked him to do. So it was uh, it was hilarious. It was probably one of the one of the first things I've learned two weeks in the country, yeah. <laughs> and uh, the difference is 
continued. Like they have, a, they, they they are not able to criticize, so you can't go in Southeast Asia. And I've seen this in Thailand and the Philippines, other places where I worked in Indonesia as well. Um, like if if you go, like it's normal for us in Europe to go and talk with with the client about the problems that they have, right? So what is the problem that you have with our app? Uh, how can we make it better? That will never work in Southeast Asia because uh, people are just not not able to criticize the work uh, that somebody else did. They are going to be very polite. They're going to say, oh, it works nice. I really like it. It's very difficult mm. for you as a product person to dig deeper into in understanding their pain points. It's interesting. I, I wanted to ask you as well about Romania because it fascinates me. Um, I I lived for many years in in Spain, and my wife is Spanish, so you know I'm aware that Romanian is a is a Romance language, and that you know the the, the country and the culture derive from the old Roman province of um, of uh, Dacia. Um, so in effect, you're like modern day Roman. So is is the culture in Romania more like its neighbors, say Bulgaria, Serbia, Ukraine, or is it more like Italy and Spain? I would say more more like Italy and Spain in my opinion um, we are the only people in around us that actually um, use the Latin alphabet and uh, our language is obviously the only the only Latin one in the region uh, I honestly feel at home whenever I'm traveling to Latin America for example or to Spain I'm very much connected with that way of working and with that way of um, of carrying one's life, I would say. And uh, back to your business then. In your own business, uh, what do you see as the, the future? Um, what are your ambitions for the business in terms of new, new services, new markets, new sectors? We have a lot of things that we're um, we're working on. One of the one of the things that we are trying to to create now is we're trying to to get organizations, large organizations, to collaborate and to uh, and to cross pollinate across industry borders. Um, so not just having all the people in pharma staying together, learning from one another, and all the people in maritime staying together, and all the people in banking staying together, but we're trying to get them to understand the fact that the problems that they that they solve from are not only their problems and these are these are industry generic pro- uh, they are not industry generic problems they are size problems if you want so the more the bigger you are as a company the more people you have you are more likely going to see those problems so we're trying to get to create a um, let's say a global innovation maturity index and people from various parts of uh, various parts of the world are able to see the maturity of a certain industry and the problems that they are facing so they understand that they are not alone in in trying to solve that. Mm-hmm. Your views on uh, globalization, I think in, in many ways y- you and people like you who have you know worked and uh, uh, traveled and studied in many countries or working with international clients, you're almost like a manifestation, a product of the globalization of the last 40, 50 years. And it seems in the last few years, at least, you know, with Brexit, US protectionism, trade wars, rising nationalism, that maybe we're at an inflection point. What's, what's your view? Where do you think we are? Are we stalled? Is it a blip? Are we going backwards? What do you think? In my opinion, right? I think it's just one last push of the world, of the old world. Oh, a kind of reaction. Dies yeah. Off. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, that's that's what I think. There, there's no way. There's no way stopping this. And I, I know so many 
uh, multicultural families like yours. I have I have here friends. Uh, she's uh, she's from Romania. Uh, he is from France. They've met in Shanghai. Now they live here in Germany. Please explain <laughs> that that globalization doesn't work. My my best friend here. He's also Romanian, and um, and he lives with a Vietnamese girl. They met in Germany. Like seriously, I think that um, that uh, globalization is here to stay, and it's going to have an uh, a huge impact on how we work and how we see each other. Mm-hmm. And you outside of work, what kind of things do you like to do when you're not working? Uh, a lot of things. Uh, I'm riding motorbikes in the summer, skiing <laughs> and skiing and playing hockey in the winter. So, <laughs> yeah. And have you, have you read anything lately uh, that particularly inspired you that you would recommend to listeners? Um, so there's uh, there's this new book by by Taleb, uh, Skin in the Game, which I probably bought about two weeks ago. I haven't gotten around to reading it because my girlfriend took it away from me, <laughs> and uh, and I was sitting with her. So in the meantime, I got busy reading a book you might find very interesting, talking about uh, talking about strategy. Right? Yeah. It's called um, Leading from the Future. It's uh, it's written by a one of the best uh, best writers, in my opinion, at, at the moment, um, Mark Johnson. But um, yeah, I would I would like to get round to to reading uh, Taleb's latest Taleb's new book. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll certainly look up the uh, Leading from the Future by by Johnson. Sounds interesting. Yeah, and, it just came out I think two months ago or three months ago, so it's okay. it's it's fairly fresh. And where can people find out more about you, your business, your thinking, your website, and so on? Do you LinkedIn do you- is the best. Uh, LinkedIn is the best. Uh, place and uh, and Twitter. I'm pretty active on on both uh, on both platforms. LinkedIn more more than than Twitter, but uh, active on both. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dan. It's been an absolute uh, pleasure talking to you. I really enjoyed it. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thanks also to our listeners. And remember that if you would like to find out more about globalization, international business, and how we can help you to formulate and implement your strategies, please check out my blog and website on albalogistics.com and my book, International Supply Chain Relationships, which can be purchased on Amazon and Google Books. This is Patrick Daly of Alba Consulting. Goodbye and keep well until next time.